0: The OTV Sports app. Listen to OTV Sports Radio 24 7, plus all your favorite podcasts, including OTV Gold. Are you a complete rookie? The OTV Sports app. Available to download now from your App Store. The OTV Podcast Network. With Green Farm on the go, snack smart with 100% natural, protein powered chicken bites. You ain't shit. I wish I was 50 years younger no, no. and I'd kick your ass. <laughs>
4: behind, James gets there just first.
0: James didn't quite get there, punch down, but how he balanced his body to strike it truly through the crowd, Eric Cantona. Mappert has gone forward with Stewart to the right, Lineker and Howes to the left, is Gas going on ahead? Is yes, you know, oh, I say brilliant! That is schoolboy's own stuff. Oh, I bet even he can't believe it. Is there anything left from this man to surprise us? That was one of the finest free kicks that this stadium has ever seen. Seaman. Got his hands, couldn't hold, Spurs have the lead, Paul Gascoigne, the scorer. Lee, interesting, very interesting, oh, look at his face, just look at his face.
3: Well, you're welcome back to Off the Ball Saturday here on News Talk. This is the Saturday panel, I just cannot wait for this, I'm like a kid in a sweet shop, football commentators. Over the next hour, we're going to talk to three of the greats of sports broadcasting. Any of us who love football love a good commentator. The person who can paint the picture, say the right thing at the right time, that companion in the living room, the person who adds the color to match her excitement, that hand-in-glove feeling. And over the next hour, we're going to speak to three greats about this rare and brilliant talent of commentating. Delighted to be joined by George Hamilton, the veteran RT television and radio commentator, the voice of the Republic of Ireland, the voice of the boys in green. Barry Davies, the former BBC commentator and veteran of World Cups and Olympic Games, so many of them. And John Champion, an ESPN commentator, ex-BBC, ITV, uh, Premier League as well, and a really important voice in football, transatlantic now, obviously, with America. George, Barry and John, good afternoon.
2: Good afternoon to you, John. Good afternoon, good afternoon John.
3: Hope you're all well. I'm just, uh, I'm like, as I said, a kid in the sweet shop here. I'm so excited to talk to you about the, the beautiful game of football and the art of commentary. There's so many things we could talk about. So let's just get straight to it. George Hamilton, anybody listening out there, the skills to be a great commentator. What makes a great commentator in your view?
1: I think uh, obviously you, you need to have a passion for the sport that you're involved in. You need to want to be involved in it. And uh, once you get involved in it, you need to bring to it some level of expertise. And I suppose there's a, a degree of of, of uh, study involved in, in getting to the point where you can impart your knowledge about the game that you're commentating upon. And then also there has to be something in you that, that wants to deliver the message of in, in the commentary, because it's a bit like playing the piano or it's a bit like being a stage actor. It has to be in you to come out. That's how I feel about it. And And so, I'm, I feel I'm blessed that I've been able to do this, that I've been able to, to, uh, to hone the skills of commentator and to become the commentator over all these years that has given me so much pleasure and it, it seems it brought some pleasure as well because it's, it's something, I think, that, 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 that's just inside you uh, and, it, and it comes out a bit, as I say, like a, a musician.
3: And Barry, um, what do you think makes a great commentator?
4: I think that was so beautifully put. Um, that I can't really add to it. Uh, I mean, clearly a, a love of the game, but I, I, I mean, I always felt I was in a privileged position um, and that I got paid for a hobby. Um, and I love the different variety that I was given. I know we're, we're football commentators here, but I was given so many opportunities by the BBC. Uh, and you you get to appreciate different sports and the problems of them. Uh, to play for a start and to commentate on them uh, and it requires different things at different uh, different sports but people used to say to me before i got to a match uh quite often and i'm sure i did to the other guys uh who, what do you think is going to happen today do you think so and so is going to win and i always said i don't know and that's what i've come to find out and that was my my policy of, of the game I could. In the early days, I could tell you everything about it. Afterwards, uh, as time went on, uh, I didn't remember quite so much.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> and John, for you, what makes a great commentator?
2: Oh, all of the above. I think that uh, it, it's it's such a thrill to be to be on with with Barry and with George, two gentlemen who I've looked up at uh, uh, for, for many many years and uh, and tried in in some senses to to emulate. Um, I think it's a bit like a high wire act without a safety net. I mean, if you fall off, the bump is not going to be that serious, but that, that's how I would liken it. And I think that's the, that's the thrill of it. That's where the adrenaline comes from. And, and I echo what Barry said about the glorious uncertainty of live sporting events unfolding in front of you. I think if you can react um, through emotion to what you're seeing, then you're halfway there. I think one of the main things for me in, in what makes a a really good commentator is someone that doesn't get in the way of the enjoyment of the event. So someone that's not so self-important that they think that their words are actually going to uh, top what the 25 cameras around a football pitch or any other sporting event are giving the viewer at home, because that's always going to be the dominant image and the dominant thing in their minds, I think. So it's someone who's sensitive enough to know their role, to know that that's you're not the reason that people are tuning in. Uh, you can augment the images, but you can never dominate or better them. So uh, I think that would be my, my take on it, really. We see
3: these um, amazing Clive Tilsley uh, briefing notes and, and notes on matches, guys. Uh, how do you prepare for a commentary? What goes into it during the week? How meticulous were you? And how did you mind your greatest gift, which is your voice? So, George, how did you prepare for a
1: Republic of Ireland game or a game at a World Cup? I think it's a bit like uh, I liken it to being when I was a student and you're, you're constantly on the on the lookout for, for some more knowledge and, and it, it's, it's not something that you kind of sit down and do, right, I have a match tomorrow so here we go with three hours of preparation. It's something <clears> that builds up over time and, and you amass the knowledge and in these days of, of technology, uh, the laptop is a wonderful thing. My old us, George, the late Joy Williams in Belfast, used to talk about my traveling library where I'd take books around with me, uh, reference books like the, the Rothman's uh, Soccer Yearbook. But uh, now with the, with the laptop, everything is in there and it is my traveling library and it's also my resource. For when I prepare for a match, because I can go back to the notes I made for previous occasions and with the Champions League just resuming, I was able, I'd done Leipzig already, I'd done Liverpool already, I was able to go back in there and and, and refocus on on the match in hand. But I suppose I'm not really answering your question, but I'd say what what I actually do. I just, I just, a bit, a bit like the, the snapper up of unconsidered trifles in Shakespeare's play Autolycus. You know, I, I take things in and I and I do my best to, to put them into some kind of shape in my mind. Because I think one of the things about a commentator, and I'm sure the other guys would agree, is that you cannot script a commentary. You have to be able to react. Because if it's scripted, it sounds like it's been prepared weeks in advance. Whereas it, you know, if you're reacting spontaneously to what's going on, it has to come from within you. So I, I try to soak up as much as I can on the way to a match. Of course the facts are important too because there will be the 50th appearance of whoever it was, or it will be the 100th goal of whoever it was. So you want to be on top of that if it happens. But you don't want to be saying it. If he'd scored today, that would have been his 100th goal. So you have all this stuff ready to go. And then as the action unfolds, you bring it to the forefront. And I find myself during commentary, sometimes a thread will will appear in my mind and and it'll be like a worm. You know, it's there. I know this might happen and I've got it ready to go. And that would have been the, the nation holds its breath thing because... I I couldn't have scripted that the the penalty in Genoa in 1990 and it just came to me in the moment but it came to me because of all that I had done beforehand and it it was there ready to emerge at at the right moment so preparation uh, for me is about soaking up as much as I possibly can uh, making sure I have the key facts in order and then letting loose when when the whistle blows and the game starts.
3: So Barry when you said very interesting about Franny Lee or when you said schoolboy's own stuff about Gaza was it completely off the cuff?
4: I have never scripted any lines in commentary. I've had to to script some introductions, usually for the benefit of the producer or the person sitting alongside me who is being asked to come in at a particular point and needs to hear me say a particular word to come in. Um, And I've actually got slightly irritated by the fact that it seems to me that quite a lot now is, is open, that they open on a scripted basis and not looking at the pictures that they're being offered. And I think the, the, the task should be at the beginning to try and weave in what's required, teams and so on and so forth. But you do have to look at the pictures. And when you're, when you're not in control of those pictures, by that I mean uh, doing a foreign match or whatever, um, you, you have to we'd push in what, you need to say around what you're what you're being offered. Um, quite frankly, there's always the possibility too that you've got a good line in your mind. Um, in my early days, I was much too concerned about the the uh, fifth goal in the last 18 games. Um, we didn't have uh, assists in those days, or all the other statistics which have now got into football. Boringly, in my opinion. Um, And I remember when when Ken Walson Holmes' commentary on the cup final, when Charlie George scored for Arsenal, don't ask me which year it was, it was a credit goal. And I thought, why didn't he just say, bye, George? Um, (laughs) And I remember that when I was doing a match between Real Madrid and Derby County. And Charlie George scored another magnificent goal. And I said something quite (laughs) nebulous. And I realized 10 seconds later, ah, damn it, we missed it. <laughs> um, and, it and it's a, it's a danger. And statistically, it's a, it's a danger if you're looking for someone to score their 100th goal or 150th goal. Um, I, I used to prepare a lot, although in terms of how my colleague, uh, <laughs> I mentioned, is that John Watson prepared. I mean, he <laughs> had cheated. Uh, I, I had less and less stuff the older that I got which probably means I was getting
3: lazy. <laughs> John when you got this r- wonderful report that went viral uh, with Ali McCoy say in 2018 there at the world cup that is completely unscripted
2: surely. Yeah, I mean uh, listen what we do is supposed to be a spontaneous act uh, and it needs to be. So yes of, of course all of that was was unscripted that just sort of developed I'm still not quite sure where it developed from <laughs> um, uh, and and where it's where it's led us since. Um I mean, that all emanated from sitting in Kaliningrad doing one of the early matches of the World Cup of 2018, alongside Ali McCoy. And so ITV, for better or worse, had decided to throw the two of us together as a commentary duo. Uh, and we'd known each other for 20-odd years. In fact, we, we reminisced before the game that day about first meeting on a, on a launch. I think Barry may well have been there as well, on the River Seine, on the eve of the 1998 World Cup. And we were both talked at by Jimmy Hill for about two hours. And uh, and we it was a question of which one of us was more tempted to throw him overboard by the end of a, a very um, frustrating conversation in some regards. But we we hit it off then, um, worked on a couple of subsequent World Cups, but not together but as members of the same broadcast team with, with ITV in 02 and 06. And then out of the blue were, were thrown together. So we're sitting doing Croatia against Nigeria in Kaliningrad. And that morning, we'd been for a walk to pass the time and to see what Kaliningrad was all about. And we'd walked past the grave of Immanuel Kant, the philosopher. And um, uh, in a lull in the first half, with a player injured on the ground and the director not being very helpful to us in terms of shots to, to talk about relevant to the game, I turned to Ali and asked him what he'd made of Kaliningrad so far. And he came up with this answer, uh, saying he'd always been a, a big admirer of, of the works of Immanuel Kant. And moreover, he was delighted to be in a, the place where the Teutonic Knights were so influential in the 16th century, which was an answer I didn't expect and took us in a direction that I certainly could have anticipated. And we were sort of off and running with this strange travelogue version of the World Cup, which was not really of my doing. It was one innocent question on my behalf, but he picked up the ball and ran with it off into the distance and there was nothing I could do to, to stop him coming back. So I suppose that's a long-winded way of saying, yeah, you can do all the preparation in the world, but the things for which you're probably remembered uh, are things that you haven't prepared at all. And just to give a, a brief insight, when I was The Office Junior at, at Match of the Day, I was the most fortunate young broadcaster in Britain because I had as role models Barry Davis and John Watson two entirely different characters uh, who were both extremely generous, sparing Barry's blushes uh, um, at, at the moment, with their, with their time to me as a young broadcaster and their advice. And I was struck by the fact that Barry was just prepared to, uh, to go to a game on a Saturday um, and if I talked to him on a Wednesday or Thursday and, and said to him, you know, is anyone, anyone making their 200th appearance for Derby County on Saturday? I don't, I'm not sure whether Barry would have researched that at that stage, because I, I don't think it was ever going to be a particularly important point in the game. Whereas if I asked John Motson what the inside leg measurement of Derby's reserve goalkeeper was, he could tell me and also give me 75 other facts that <laughs> weren't going to make it into the country. So they were two entirely different approaches. I perhaps took a bit more from Barry than from John on on that front. Um, So I I just think that, yes, you you need to be prepared for something happening, uh, but I don't think statistics and and hours buried in a book are going to bear much fruit, really. Yes, absolutely. I think assimilation is crucial, isn't it, guys, from what you're
3: saying today? Um, When I just, like, look at your careers, I just think World Cups, Olympic Games, World Cups, so many World Cups. We're talking, like, double figures between the three of you um, easily. what makes you smile when you think about all these amazing experiences you had uh, over so many years uh, going to see football on a global stage, George? I presume you've got to start with Italia 90.
1: Well, uh, Italia 90, what was that? 1878, 80, that was my fourth World Cup. I have RTE to thank for sending me to Argentina in 1978, which was the beginning of it all, really, for me. It blossomed, and I had been working in Belfast for the BBC regionally. Uh, And I got this opportunity because they were stuck for a fourth commentator to send to Argentina. And when I came back, they offered me a job. And that that was it. And that was how my RTE career started. And what makes me smile is how lucky I was to get that gig. Because that gig was six matches in Mendoza, which nobody had ever heard of at the time. But now everybody knows is the home of Argentine wine. And I flew with a guy called uh, Morris Reedy. We had no co-commentator at the time. And we did those six games. And who did the six games involve? Well, they involved Brazil, they involved the Netherlands, and they involved also Scotland. And I got to do that amazing goal that Archie Gemmel scored when he slalomed through the Dutch defence. And I got to do Brazil. And th- this is the boy from Belfast, his first World Cup. And and that, that, that you know, topped it all because I, I could never imagine being somewhere like that. And, and and so that that's the one thing that makes me smile when I look back. But... You mentioned Italian 90. This was the other side of my career when I'd gone to England and then uh, our family was two young children and we decided we'd we'd like to bring them up in Ireland and an opportunity came to rejoin RTE and my rejoining RTE more or less coincided with the FAI's uh, happenstance appointment of Jack Charlton as as the manager Uh, and of course That began with some people not entirely happy that the choice had been made this way, an English World Cup winner managing Ireland. And there was that famous banner at Lansdowne Road on the occasion of the opening match. Uh, And how things were back then, Lansdowne on a Wednesday afternoon because there were no floodlights, and up on the east stand in the corner there's this big banner saying, go home Union Jack. Well, they weren't saying go home Union Jack 10 years later because he'd done so wonderful things for the Irish psyche, never mind the football team. But Italia 90 grew out of Euro 88. And I, I was, it was almost like surfing a wave that never ended with Jack. And, and, and that, of course, is uppermost in my mind now when I think back of, of all the highlights of, of all the things that, that I did. It was Italia 90, Republic of Ireland's first World Cup, Republic of Ireland in the quarterfinals. Uh, who could have imagined it? Who could have written that script? And it was just the best of times. What did you make, uh,
3: Barry, of Jack's team? Because we kind of came out of nowhere. We've been unlucky maybe for to not to qualify for the 82 World Cup, but there we are uh, at World Cup 90. I remember you commentated on the Dutch game in 94 as well. What did you make of the Irish uh, uh, explosion across the uh, the football landscape globally, Barry?
4: Oh, George, I was a huge fan of Jack Charlton. He was a wonderful, wonderful person to be with. Uh, told it like it was. I didn't pull back on anything if he was... American criticism did so. Um, I I was present in New York on the the night that uh, uh, Ireland had beaten Italy. But uh, yeah, I mean, that, that was quite the most wonderful occasion. And To stroll around New York City that night to go from the Irish part to the Italian part. I mean, Ireland know how to enjoy themselves. The Irish have always done that. Uh, And that's that's among many good memories for me. But, But I have to go back. I got to see North Korea beat Italy because I was working for ITV. And we're talking about 1966. And if that World Cup had not been in England, and ITV, who were very much the new boys on the block, hadn't suddenly had to find four commentators, I would never have done the job that I've done. I would never have had the opportunity. If it had been in France or somewhere like that, they certainly wouldn't have paid money to send me out there. But they did pay money. John Bromley, bless him. He wanted me to go up to the Northeast two days before the tournament started. Um, And bumptious kid that I was, I said to him, if you were going to send me out there for a week before, I'm not doing it. Uh, I mean, nobody knew, bloody hell, where, where, where North Korea was. Um, and, and since then, uh, uh, the, last, the last World Cup I did, where were, there were three teams that were very difficult to, 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 to spot, I had matches with all three of them and travelled back and forward between the two countries.
3: And John, for you, of all, all those World Cups, you were went to your first one in 1990. You were quite young at the time, and I was uh, you...
2: 25, I think, when I yeah. did my first one, which and was 20... for radio for BBC radio. For radio. I went as well. To more than anything else, so yeah. I'd only I'd only been with national radio about six months. So I was fresh out of local radio in Yorkshire, uh, and I was given the, the the job of going and hosting the coverage from from Rome. So that was eye opening. It was wonderful. Um, it was one of those formative experiences, and I, I didn't think it would be the, the first of quite so many. But you know, I'm up to I can't compete with these two gentlemen. I'm up to eight, and counting in terms of, of World Cups. Um, I, I think of the various experiences uh, that, that that competition in particular has has thrown up. Um, I mean, great games, great moments, defining moments unfolding in front of you. But it tends to be the, the, the wider experience of what it's like to go to those World Cups that sticks with me. I mean, you talked to me about 2018 in Russia with Ali McCoyst. I also remember touring um, Korea and Japan in 2002 with the late Graham Taylor as my co commentator for ITV, who was the most wonderful company, very generous man. But we spent most of the tournament not so much looking forward to the games we were going to do as desperately trying to contact players through dubious agents that he was. Trying to sign as manager of Aston Villa. So um, that was the, the main theme of that World Cup, really. And, and different stories like that have emerged at different times in my career. I remember that the, the biggest sea change was doing 2014 for the Americans. That was the first thing I'd done for an American broadcaster for ESPN. And they, they offered me the chance to go and, and commentate for them. Um, and uh, it was when I arrived at the, the host set, which all broadcasters like to have for major tournaments, and they like to have spectacular backdrops, so maybe Red Square for the the Russian World Cup for for the BBC and ITV, but ESPN had decided that Copacabana Beach was the place to be, and whereas the BBC or ITV would send a couple of producers two or three months in advance, perhaps perhaps a little more, and secure a a place where a porter cabin like set could go, ESPN had gone out there two years before and bought the local yacht club for $30 million. (laughs) Um, and <laughs> it was only then that I realised the scale of the operation that I was, I was working for. So that, that was quite eye-opening as well. So that, that's a rather roundabout way of talking about World Cup experiences. To me, it's yes, matches remain in my mind, but it's the wider experience of what each country has been like as a host nation and therefore what the experience was in a, in a, in a wider sense okay guys we've got to take a break we'll be back with more of our
3: football commentary panel with george hamilton barry davies and john champion after this
0: and it's now romania's second substitute daniel Timopte dynamo bucharest midfield player to step forward but the sequence now is that if he should miss this and ireland's last penalty taker should score then the match of the progress are ireland's Timopte against bonner man from dunny ball has set it up and who is stepping forward to take the penalty this is the moment that he'll treasure for the rest of his days i'm sure but who's stepping up to assume the task david o'leary of arsenal in his 52nd international appearance david o'leary is entrusted with the responsibility of taking the penalty that could send Ireland into the quarter-finals of the World Cup. This kick can decide it all. The nation holds its breath. Yes, we're there! <laughs> are through to the
3: well, you're welcome back to Off the Ball Saturday here on News Talk. John Duncan with you through to five. The Saturday panel is dedicated this week to football commentators. We're delighted to be in the company of three broadcasting legends today. George Hamilton, veteran RT television and radio commentator, the voice of the Republic of Ireland. Barry Davies, the former BBC commentator, veteran of World Cups, Olympic Games, and ESPN commentator, and ex-BBC IGV and Premier League voice, John Champion. Uh, Before the break there, guys, we were speaking about the World Cups and great experiences. The best game you've ever seen Football-wise, on a pitch, George Hamilton, what's the best game you've ever seen?
1: France-Brazil, Guadalajara, Mexico World Cup, nineteen eighty-six. Uh, it was just so sensational. Uh, the detail, maybe not etched in my mind so much anymore, but the occasion was such. Again, it was Brazil. Uh, Zico came on as a as a sub and, and did remarkably, and France were were outstanding as well. And and it was it was just one of those matches where everything sang tune and, and it was a, a great day out, a great day out as a spectator, a great day out as a commentator because the match had everything, drama, twists, turns, the whole rest. But uh, there have been wonderful matches all, all across the piece, matches like Arsenal is is my team um, and they won uh, in uh, Scandinavia. Did they beat Genoa in a final? Maybe I'm... I'm Getting the details a bit mixed up here, but it was it it, it was a, it was a wonderful it, it was a wonderful night to be. That was the one nil for the Arsenal tie with George Graham was the manager, uh, and before Arsene Wenger came along. And I, I also get, got to do uh, you know big matches involving Arsenal, like the Champions League final in, in 2006 when uh, Jens Lehmann got himself sent off. You know, there's terrific matches uh, right across the piece. It's very hard to pin one down, but the one that I did, as I say, pin down was France Brazil because it, it just for me had everything.
3: Barry, the best match you've ever seen in all your
4: years of football commentary? Almost impossible to answer that question. Uh, But I'm going to stay at home, as it were. Uh, Two matches from Euro 96. Uh, England's defeat of Holland uh, in the last match of the group, which was the best performance I ever saw from an England team under... Terry Venables or any other manager. It was absolutely wonderful performance. And I can see the goal that uh, the second goal that uh, Shearer scored when, when sherringham just, just angled his body just right to play it to him when the goalkeeper was already moving for the shot that sherringham didn't offer. And then the semi-final, I know I've picked two, but I'm allowed to be greedy, I'm the honest here. <laughs> um, but, but the game against Germany, which England, of course, should have won, it had everything. I remember so much Desmond Lynham handed over to me so early at Wembley that evening, uh, which was great. I said very little for about seven or eight minutes. And I just let the crowd sing the one song that became absolutely England's uh, music for the entire competition. England should have won. Of course, it ended sadly for the man who's now looking after England's hopes for the next European Championships, and who, in my opinion, has been doing very well, provided uh, he lets talent rule as well as organisation in uh, his choice of squad. We'll get on to that later, I'm sure. But I picked those two. Um, there, there were many in the World Cup, uh, in World Cups, but certainly not the one final I did, which was exhausting from the point of view of heat. Poor because all the players were exhausted. Uh, the only good thing about it was that Brazil got their name on the Cup again uh, after, I think, a wait of 24 years. A stat, I remembered it. <laughs> <laughs>
3: And Barry, in, in 96, you just, when Gareth Southgate missed the penalty, you just went, oh, no. I suppose you just, a bit like yourself, George, with uh, Pat Bonner, it's, it's just you just say what you see.
4: It's just what came at the time. Uh, I mean, the, 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 that uh, penalty competition where the penalties were actually, uh, until the miss, what was superbly well taken. Um, and it was just, oh, no, it's gone again. Uh, And what I said, I suspect was said with a few adjectives in between by anybody watching it on television with England in in their hearts, Uh, because we knew it was gone. Germans don't miss in penalties, particularly if it's for the winning goal.
3: Absolutely, yeah. And John, the best match you've ever seen in all your years of commentary?
4: Well, there's always a pressure to cite
2: a World Cup match, I think, as, as Barry alluded to, because people expect that the prime competition in the world will produce the best games or the most memorable games. So I suppose ultimately my answer will be a a World Cup match. But I I would give honourable mention to a couple of European games, second legs of ties that I've been fortunate enough to be at the microphone for, where a a British team has, on aggregate, needed four goals to win, having been beaten in the first leg and then going behind in the second. So I I very much um, fondly remember a, a UEFA Cup semi-final at Middlesbrough where they needed four goals to beat Bucharest, and they got them with the last one in the last minute by an Italian called Massimo Macaroni and then the same thing happened a couple of seasons later the UEFA Cup had become the Europa League and I remember turning up at Craven Cottage one night to watch Fulham play Juventus um, a, a fixer that I never ever thought would come to pass why would Fulham ever play Juventus but the vagaries of the Europa League threw them together And Fulham had got thumped in Turin and then conceded the first goal and needed to score four. And they did it at Craven Cottage. Uh, And Clint Dempsey scored a most remarkable chipped goal to seal the deal. Um, So those would be two that I would always look back on. There have been some wonderful FA Cup ties over the years. I think one of the beauties of the FA Cup is that you're privileged to be a visitor on what, in many cases for the smaller clubs, is the, the biggest day in their history when they write their own history. So that's always been a great thrill, but inevitably I come back to the World Cup and I'd give two games that I mention. Um, the Dutch destruction of Spain, World Cup 2014, Van Persie's horizontal header, that, that sticks in the mind. Um, and ultimately, a game that I only did for highlights for the BBC back in 1998, Brian Moore was doing it live for ITV, England and Argentina. Um, just because so much happened in that game, I don't need to go through what happened because it's all folklore now, but Beckham and Owen and the penalties and everything else, um, so much in 120 minutes plus a, a spot kick shootout. Uh, you were also
3: at the infamous Cantona kick game in Somers mm. Park uh, in 1995, John. Could you believe what you were saying when it was going on? No, I mean, I, uh, I owe Eric Cantona
2: a huge debt of gratitude because he basically helped me get a television career. Because as, as I understand it, the wet was told to me i was doing the radio i suppose radio two would have become radio five in the uk by then so the radio five commentary with mark bright the old palace player of crystal palace against manchester united which on the face of it was a, a run-of-the-mill midweek premier league game um, and suddenly this incident um canton I mean, army barry and george would be well aware of Cantonar's days when he would brood through a game and you know that something was was going to happen and this was one of those nights um and eventually uh he snapped and the referee sent him off for a challenge i think on richard shore of crystal palace and as he walked down the touchline um i was i was talking and we were reflecting about the fact that he'd been sent off and then suddenly we just saw him take off and leap two footed into the crowd and land his studs in the in the chest of a, a spectator and at that point as again my eminent colleagues here have said I think instinct, emotion, um, the the enormity of what happens dictates what you say and what you don't say. And so I I, I couldn't really tell you to this day what, what I said, um, but whatever it was struck a chord with Jonathan Martin, who was the, the long-serving head of sport at the BBC, who I'm led to leave, believe was watching in his, or listening in his bath that night to the commentary. And they were looking for someone to to come in numerically to replace John Motson, certainly not man for man, but I think John was going to have a, a bit of a break from broadcasting. Um, and uh, off the back of that, I got the I got the gig. Uh, my, my main memory of that night is nothing that I said, but just the contribution of Mark Bright as the co-commentator, who only came up with three words to sum up the moment, which were, oh, my, God! <laughs> yeah, that's as well. and that, that probably was all that was required. So yes, Eric Cantona has been, um, has been influential in my career and also helped me get my, very briefly, also helped me get my move to America because to to work over here, you have to jump all sorts of hurdles in terms of your eligibility and suitability for employment. And they employ high-powered lawyers to get you the required visa to work in America, which includes having testimonials from famous people on whom you've commentated. So when I signed my contract over here, before I could do so, this 85-year-old employment lawyer Elizabeth Leet of New York City was deputed to to get my visa for me, so somehow she tracked down Michael Owen and various other people, David Beckham, and spoke to them and got them to write letters of recommendation, but her biggest achievement was ringing Eric Cantona on a film set in the south of France to ask if he would <laughs> write a letter of support <laughs> off the back of the fact that I'd commentated on on him. Brilliant story That's John. That's astonishing.
4: <laughs> That's a great story. Yeah. Great yeah. Story.
1: Barry, were you, were you at the game at Sheffield Wednesday or am I mixing our uh, commentary, so to speak, when Paolo De Canio pushed over the referee? Yes, I was. Yeah, I because was. I, thought, I thought you were there that day because I, I, I did that game. We were doing live matches in the uh, first division at that time. And I had it in my head that, that you had been at that game as well as, as me. Because there's a, another great story that you tell that I tell about you, uh, which uh, involved a game at West Ham when De Canio was playing. And he came in for the post-match interview and uh, <laughs> his collar on his coat was slightly askew. Uh, and I suggested to him that he might like to check his collar before doing the interview. And there was a loud guffaw from behind me and it was you at the thought of an Irishman telling an Italian how to dress. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Great memory. That's um, so wonderful.
3: There are also we like do so many matches over so many years there are unfortunately tragedies happen um, and, and there is sadness uh, with the game as well. Barry, you were in Heysel when uh, 39 people lost their lives, um, the Juventus-Liverpool match in, in 1985. It was, uh, w- when there was something like that is unfolding, do you know what's going on or, or do you have to just wing it? What was the situation back then, if you can recall?
4: Well, I mean, basically I went to, to commentate on what was expected to be a really good match. It was the best two teams in Europe reaching the final. Um, And I found myself having to describe a tragedy. Uh, It was complicated in the extreme in television terms by the fact that Jimmy Hill was on the um, Terry Wogan show. And they were laughing, doing all sorts of things. and John Shrewsby, who was my producer, was trying to tell them, this is dangerous. He, he actually said, people will get killed here in our discussions. Um, and Jimmy had to turn from the program into the presenter of the football program. I tried four or five times to script an opening, and the pieces of paper were. Remained at my feet, and I just opened my mouth and described what I'd seen and what I thought. Um, and they kept coming backwards and forwards. They had uh, uh, pieces from the from the news um, uh, into interwoven with coming live. Um, it was a horrendous thing, um, and sadly, one of the. One of the remarks that that I made wasn't understood uh, by the government at the time, particularly the leader of the government at the time, who basically had seen the problems that had been building up uh, as uh, connected to the miners' strike. And there was one point when I made the observation that fortunately, They'd been able to, people running away, had managed to get onto the pitch and they saved themselves as a result of that. And then we all know what happened uh, just a very short time later at Hillsborough where people died because people were supposed to watch football in a cage. It was very difficult. I was working with Bobby Charlton uh, you couldn't send Bobby away to go and look and see what had happened with his memory of disaster. Um, I was greatly indebted to Mike Ingham, uh, who was the number two commentator for radio. Um, uh, Peter Jones was the, was the main commentator. Um, and, and he and Mike went down to check and see uh, what had happened, whether people were seriously injured and so on and so forth. And there was a sort of uh, messages coming down the line, which you know, two people the first person mentioned to the second person, it was 20 by the time it got to the 30th person. There was a huge danger of that silly whisper game. Um, and it was in a very different way, a case of just opening your mouth and hoping the right words would come.
3: Absolutely, yeah, Barry, yeah, it was a, tr- a tragic situation and uh, as you referenced there, Barry Hillsborough and George, you were there on that fateful day in April A at March 99.
1: Yeah, uh, I, 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 I missed uh, Heisel, um, but I didn't miss Hillsborough sadly uh, and, and as, it's as Barry says, people watching football from within cages uh, and, and it's, that's what, what caused it basically. There was no, no escape. Um, we were live, Cup semi-final um, on television and uh, the game stopped. It's, it appeared that there might have been some trouble in the crowd. That's what it looked like because there was a kerfuffle going on, and you assume that perhaps uh, something like that has happened. But, but say, saying nothing other than that there seems to be something going on because you can't speculate in these circumstances, uh, and and you're you're nowhere near thinking that it's going to unfold the way it does. So it, basically, it seems that uh, in in that those days there there was the odd spot of bother on the terraces, and you just maybe something's going on over there. But then the referee takes the players off the pitch. And then you see the guy trying to climb out of the pen up into the upper deck. And then you begin to see people trying to climb out. And then you realize it's a lot more than that. And then, then the, the scene where the advertising hoardings are being used to carry people away as makeshift stretchers. And then the shock, the absolute horror and shock when one of those advertising hoardings was being carried away with someone on it whose head was covered by a jacket and the obvious implication of what that meant. And I was working with John Giles that day, uh, and John Giles was was in absolute horror himself. And I mean, for for a former football manager and player of his eminence to suddenly become like a war correspondent, he was exceptional that day as a a co-commentator. And our producer on the day was a guy called David O'Hagan. And David, with presence of mind, in Dublin they said we're staying on the air with this. This is this is awful, but we have to, this is live news now. And David went downstairs, a bit like Mike Ingham and Peter Jones did. And David came back, and his face was ashen, and he just said they're being lined up at the back of the stand. This was Hillsborough, where, where Barry and I had seen Paolo Di Canio, where Steve Olive Di pushing over the referee. So the stand we were well familiar with what the stand was like at the back of Hillsborough. And David said. They're lining them up on the ground. I, I I, lost count. I couldn't. I couldn't. And and then there was word coming back from Dublin as the wires reported how bad it was. And, and that re- information was being relayed to us and we simply just carried on. And in, in those moments, as the have said, you just hope that uh, the words that you use will be appropriate for the moment because these are people's lives being lost. And it's, it's, it's just a horrible, horrible experience.
3: And it's taken decades, John, for justice to happen um, and for, for people to, you know, have their their dignity restored, I think, from the British government. And I suppose it, it changed football forever, uh, as it should have, really, the way with all Cedar Stadia and with uh, safer grounds and with um, and with respect for fans that possibly didn't exist then.
2: Yes. Yeah. I think, it, it, it. but it took, I mean, that, that the response from government in the end um, probably led us to a to a safer situation, but as, as Barry and George have said, the, the sort of the, the initial response caused even more problems than had been there before, and caused caused tragedy. Um, and of course, on the, the, the on the on the, the Hillsborough side of things, um, my my heart goes out to those many relatives and friends of the, the of the Liverpool supporters who died, who had to wait 20 plus years for what they perceived to be justice. To be to be meted out. So effectively, the, these things took place a generation ago, and it's taken a generation for for some of the implications to play out.
3: Yeah, it's uh, it's it's still like a. I remember watching as a child. It's it's, it's a harrowing a harrowing situation. Thirty two years on, like it's like I'll never forget it, and the fact that you were there, George, as well. It's just. Yeah, it doesn't uh, bear thinking about at time, Sam. But um, thankfully, justice was served, and and I acknowledged the 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 ninety six people that lost their lives and then unlawfully killed at, at Hillsborough. Um, just uh, to move on a bit, um, Barry, you were uh, at the nineteen eighty six World Cup and Maradona uh, scored those two goals against England. One of them uh, was was obviously you know very controversial, the hand of God. It was cheating, but the second one was was just absolutely incredible. Uh, when you see Maradona on the pitch, uh, what did you see when you saw this this late great figure that maybe people on the television screen would not have seen?
4: Well, of course, I knew of his, uh, of his reputation. Um, I think he would... I, I, I had this debate in my mind whether he or Pele was the greatest player that I ever saw. Uh, I never commentated on Pele. Um uh, and Johan Cruyff were coming in third place, just for the thought, and George Best there too. I, I have memories of, of that match. Probably my worst piece of commentary, which was followed by one that people have been very kind about afterwards. But, I mean, his, his ability was quite extraordinary. There wasn't anything he could do. Um, he didn't get up high enough to get his head to the ball, that's for sure, on the first goal. And I stupidly tried, when I didn't know what had happened, uh, and it's, it's one of the lessons that I've always uh, been conscious of, but on this particular occasion, didn't, didn't play it by my own rules. If you don't know, shut up, don't say anything. And I was looking to find out why the goal of what England were complaining about. And I suggested that, that it might have been offside. It was very brief. And then I realized, for goodness sake, It was a mistake by a defender that played the ball too uh, into the air in front of uh, um, Shilton and and Maradona. And then, of course, came the the other goal, and he almost repeated it subsequently against Belgium. Um, But the the words were important to me. I mean, I've I've said, I'm like John and, and George, we open our mouths and hope try to get the right thing, get an idea, and so on and so forth. Uh, and people afterwards said that I said it was sheer football genius. And I said, no, I didn't. I said it was pure football genius. Because the contrast between the two the two moments, I mean, in one, he was absolutely a cheat. And the next moment, he was absolutely world class at the highest possible level. Um, Unfortunately, when I went to the World Cup uh, in America, I was due to do the game, uh, which he didn't come and play in. And I did the game. I can't remember where it was at the time. But uh, he had decided to uh, take a few drugs and was kicked out, and we never saw his life again. And I don't think we have, although we might argue that with Messi and a few others now, and one or two among the youngsters in the English squad at the moment, if I can throw in a different line.
3: And it's it's toss up between Pele and Maradona for you, who's the best you've ever seen, Barry?
4: Yes. Um, well, I, I, I can't really divide them. Um, I'm influenced slightly because I, I commentated on them. I commentated on a lot of Mr. Cruyff too. Liked him very much as a, as a guy, um, uh, his his style uh, on the pitch and off. He he could sometimes upset people, but I was here. I would say he was the best European player. Um, I was able to interview him at length for for a program that the BBC did, as indeed I was able to interview George Best, who uh, was just the, I mean, he was nutty at times and lived his life um, in the way that he wanted to. I, I think they would be the top four of my, my players.
3: And John, the best you've ever seen?
2: Um, I, I saw the very tail end of Maradona, like Barry at the 94 World Cup. And I remember the, that image of a, a drug fueled Maradona staring down the barrel of a, of a camera with those demonic eyes Um, But I I didn't see the the glory years of of Maradona. I greatly enjoyed the 86 World Cup because he was the standard bearer for the the cutting edge of of football at the time. I I suppose of the people that I've seen and been lucky enough to commentate on regularly, I would have to say Messi. Uh, I mean, there's always a debate, isn't there Messi or Ronaldo? Ronaldo hasn't really come into it for me, and that's partly the the fact that I I regard Messi as a a pure footballer. someone who is is there to play for the joy of the sport um, whereas I I just'm probably wrongly I, I rail against those who um, tend to become show ponies and I think maybe Ronaldo has, has crossed that line rather too often for for my liking so so Messi would be the man for me but when I look back at the archive I think there's a there's a new film coming out on Netflix about Pele next week and the archive of stuff of Pele is just magnificent but It is wrapped up in the the coverage of that era and you can't be quite as forensic in in looking at at what he was was doing. We don't have the same number of angles, but you don't need too many angles to see that he was clearly a genius on a football pitch. So, whereas I grew up as a kid and everyone told me that Pelé was the best, he may well have been the best, but I couldn't verify that myself. So, Messi for me in my lifetime. And George Hamilton,
3: your best ever player?
1: Well, I would mention George Best, wouldn't I? Uh, As he... (laughs) He grew up in the same part of Belfast as me, and he wasn 't that much older and he was, the, he was very much uh, the, the idol of, of anybody who followed football at, at that time, when he went to Manchester United as a teenager and, and when, then when he developed into what he developed into but of course several things counted against him not least his lifestyle there wasn't a bad bone in his body but he just didn't know how to how to be a professional footballer basically he wanted to be a headless it seemed and the football was all part of that because he enjoyed playing and he could play so well and yes and I went to Windsor Park on the Saturday afternoons that Northern Ireland had a home game in October in the old uh, championship and would see England one year and Scotland another year and George Best mesmerizing the opposition and so of course he was a a boyhood hero uh, but but as, as John has alluded to there, when, when you think of, of the real greats, like they have to bring more to it than, a, than a, a truncated career. They have to have been there all the time, best absented himself from football for too long. And, and so that, for me, takes him out of the top echelon and leaves us with the names we've mentioned. And I think John's point is absolutely and perfectly made that while Ronaldo uh, is so effective and efficient uh, and a goal-scoring machine, Messi is a footballer. And back to Barry's word, pure. It's the football. It's the it's what he brings to it. Uh, and small men are like that. I think on a football pitch, think Messi, think Maradona. You know, they can't compete uh, in the physical sense uh, with with the big lads, the big uh, chunky centre halves. They can show us what what football is really about. And that's, so so I'm with John Champion. I'm going to go for Messi. The characters
3: you've met all through those decades, lads. The the the, the icons of the game. Um, I'm just thinking, I have to just ask you, Barry, about Brian Clough. Like, what was the enigma of Clough, like uh, face-to-face, interviewing him, talking to him? Was he the the person that made a a big impact, or were there other people in the game that you you really kind of enjoyed as characters and somebody that you would encounter on a day-to-day basis, or week-to-week basis, as I should say, with football?
4: If you walked into the baseball ground when Brian Clough was the manager there, didn't matter what day of the week it was. There was just a special feeling. Duffy was a, a, an extraordinary character. Um, I once said to him, if I could play at the right standard, Brian, I would play for you to my best for two reasons. Either because I wanted you to pick me and think I was good, or to prove you wrong, and I said that is your basis that you approach players, and he said, "Is there any other way to do it?" Um, he was a he was a wonderful character, unfortunately destroyed by the drink. I can remember the day that he died, um, and I was I was on a on a plane. And I was very grateful I was traveling um, up the front of the plane. Well, not the very Yes, it was the very front. It was only a European trip. Because I was sitting in a seat all by myself. And I must say, I was trying to keep the tears from flowing. I really had a great relationship with, with Brian, even though he could tell me off uh, quite often. I mean. One, I can remember one day going to a match where um, I was waiting down in the, in the tunnel, waiting for the teams and so on and so forth, that's we would all I had to do. And he said, oh, all these people in the way, so on and so forth, and so on and so forth. Get, get them out of here. And you know, and he knew I was there, and we all ignored him. Um, another time, he came down. How are you, he said, want a cup of tea? Come in the dressing room. (laughs) Came in the dressing room. He said, make me a cup of tea. And this was about 10 or 15 minutes before the match started. You never knew where you were going to be. And that was delightful. When they won the cup for the first time, the European cup, um, it was a wonderful cross uh, from, oh God, was the head of Francis. Yeah. Um, And I said in commentary, because I'd said, why isn't, he taking, why isn't he taking his man on, on Robertson? Why isn't he taking him on the outside? Why does he keep coming inside? And, and when he did this, he went outside and hit a beautiful cross. And I said in commentary, that's what I wanted him to do. And Cluffy would, would meet me sometimes saying, that's what I wanted him to do. Are you a manager? Are you a coach? <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah. felt a bit but it was. I mean, sometimes I did chance my arm, and, and so I know that George and, 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 and John have. If you, if you see a particular point, the way commentary has gone now with, with, with the expert, and sometimes two experts, there's a slight tendency in some areas not to allow the commentator to have an opinion. And I think he's entitled to have an opinion, not to over-express it as, as John said a few moments ago, but I think it's entitled to an opinion. And that was what I thought. And I was right. And he knew I was right.
3: (laughs) And George, uh, and you, Robin, as I said, on the ringside seat of Jack Charlton, Roy Keane's whole career progression. uh, These people, have they stood out to you, you know, your experiences with them? Or are there other characters in the game that, you know, have, have stuck in your memory?
1: Oh, there are many, uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, I've had the opportunity to, that, that World Cup I spoke about in Argentina, I was with the Dutch uh, broadcasters for quite a while, I made very good friends with several of them, uh, who are still my friends, and, and through them got to know several Dutch players uh, very well, like Arnold Muren and Brooklyn, the goalkeeper, uh, who played in England, uh, just to, names that jump off the top of my head, and yes, I met I Kruyff met as well, but he wasn't at that World Cup, but that had been through another connection. But yes, Jack Jack was fascinating and I always got on well with Jack. Jack, We, we did an interview with Jack once at Dublin airport, which was meant to be like a, a, a 10 minute sit down out of which we'd get five minutes for the program. But there was some controversy about John Aldridge and uh, not being picked at the time or uh, not scoring goals. Perhaps that was it. I don't remember the actual detail, but uh, Jack uh, got stuck into me and I got stuck into him. And the thing went on for half an hour and we put it all out. But when it was over, Jack was fine. You know, he'd had, he'd had the debate, he'd had the argument, but now we were best mates again and wanted to drink in the bar. <laughs> we were able to hammer tongs through the thing. And the, the similar story about Roy Keane, uh, when he made his debut for Ireland, or maybe it was his Lansdowne Road debut, but whatever it was, when he, he was coming out uh, of the dressing room to go to the bus, uh, and I was the in- post-match interviewer, and the situation was such that where I was standing, I could see down the corner uh, to who was uh, coming out, and I'd been asked to interview Roy Keane. And Roy Keane, as he approached, I saw him in the distance and I was saying uh, in the lazy microphone, Roy Keane's come here, I'll have Roy Keane for you in a moment. And in that moment, Roy Keane had arrived beside me and he said, no, you won't. And he walked right past me. (laughs) (laughs) That was my first introduction to Roy Keane. Uh, But we we have spoken
3: since. (laughs) (laughs) Good to hear. Uh, John, you were great uh, friends with Bobby Robson. Um, He's somebody I think you you had a lot of uh, esteem for, obviously, as so many people have. And... Was he one of the the great uh, people that inspired you as a, as a character in the game or was it just
2: a football legend, really? Um, he was lovely. He, he was great. I mean, not all of us are, are fortunate enough to have as part of our job description forging relationships of some sort with these chaps. Um, and they, they're a mixed bag of characters. But Bobby was lovely because he was so warm uh, and so genuine. Um, whenever I rang him up, he, his first question would always be, how's the family? And he'd want to know how the children were doing at school and and this sort of business. I was actually in his office by chance only because I did a game at St James's Park with David Fleet and David and Bobby were particularly close and so we were invited in for a drink in his office afterwards um, after a a run-of-the-mill league game that I think Newcastle had won against Everton and the phone rang and Bobby asked for quiet in the office and it was the FA ringing in to ask him to return as England manager for the the second time. Within 10 minutes of the final whistle of this this game having finished, I think Kevin Keegan had, had walked away from the job and they were looking for someone as a as a stopgap. So although it didn't happen in the end, I suppose we were in a, a little bit of, of history there. But I think any managers through the years that I've worked certainly wouldn't be complete without some reference to Alex Ferguson, who was certainly not the easiest man to deal with. Um, he was one of those though, I, I mean, the first time I ever saw him, I, I thought, Crumbs, you're short because I, I had this impression of this big man because of the size of the, the personality and the way that he conducted himself, which was very much on the front foot with, with everyone with a, with a clenched fist. Um, but boy, he could, he could fill a room with the, the aura that he had. I had mixed experiences with him when I was with the BBC. He didn't have a good relationship with the BBC, so there effectively was no relationship. When I moved to ITV, He had a long-standing arrangement through his friendship, largely with people like Gary Newbon, the the reporter at ITV, whereby if we went on a a Champions League trip, we'd be invited to the team hotel for breakfast. And we'd have a a very cordial chat and we'd know everything that we needed to know ahead of the the game through through that. And he was great. And and then I think he he fell out with someone at ITV and that that privilege was, was removed. But um, I do remember uh, my main Alec Ferguson memory is, is being in the tunnel one day at Old Trafford. They'd lost at home, as was his wont. They, they'd be, been beaten by Arsenal, and Manchester United-Arsenal was the thing. And he had a big a B big in his bonnet with the success of Arsene Wenger, who was still relatively new to the English game at that stage. And so he'd, as, he, as was his wont, he'd thrown in some semi-incendiary comment about Wenger in the press, at his press conference the day before the game. And the editor of the programme, uh, the ITV version of Match of the Day, which lasted for just three years, had uh, told me before the game, whatever happens, when you interview Ferguson afterwards, you've got to ask him about his comments about Wenger because they don't seem very fair to me and no one's challenged him on it. Well, there was a reason that no one had challenged him. So we did the post-match interview. I, the usual boring stuff about, you know, wasn't it a good goal? What do you think of the performance today? And then I said to him, now, um, no one's had a chance to talk to you yet. Uh, Alex, about your comments about Arsene Wenger yesterday. You think that the the FA gives him an easy ride on the disciplinary front and he should be punished a lot more for his post-match comments. And he looked at me and fixed me with a stare. And I interviewed Ferguson enough to know that that was a sign that it was a question he didn't particularly appreciate. So he gave some fairly random answer which didn't address the point at all. At which point the voice in my ear uh, said, right, he's not uh, answered the question, ask him again. So I took a deep breath and I said, you've <laughs> not really answered the question. Could you detail precisely why you decided to make these very public comments about Arsene Wenger? And at that point, the vein on his right temple started to stand out and I thought I could see it throbbing. <laughs> and that was a, another, I got to that stage with him once before and not gone beyond. Again, he didn't answer the question. So the third time I asked him, and he just looked at me and he knew that the interview was being recorded. So he seized the microphone and said, you know the rules here. You're banned. Threw the microphone <laughs> to the floor and pushed against <laughs> the wall. But what I'm proudest of was that I'd seen him do it to one other person who was a Sky reporter by the name of Nick Collins, who was a good operator a few years before. And Nick had given him a verbal volley back, not nastily, but had just stood up for himself. So Ferguson stormed off 10 minutes later, having done sundry other interviews, he came back, and I, supposedly banned, was still in the tunnel. And I pulled him to one side, and I said, look, I quite appreciate that you feel strongly that the question was unfair. I feel quite strongly that you didn't answer it. Uh, I'm quite happy for you to tell me to go away, but please do so with a bit of style and grace, rather than seizing my microphone, throwing it to the floor, and pushing me against the wall of the tunnel. At which point, he looked me up and down, nodded, shook me by the hand, and said, no hard feelings. And we never had a problem after that. So the lesson there that... There was a bit of a bully in him, but he quite appreciated being given something back.
3: Yeah, fascinating. Fascinating insight, guys. Look, I'm just thinking of visas, hotels, strange places, all these countries. There must have been mad moments from your careers in commentary, guys, George, John and Barry. George, I'm sure there's been absolute uh, adventures that have happened unexpectedly for you over the years.
1: Oh, I mean, I I can think of a a case where uh, this doesn't directly affect me, but it affected uh, uh, my colleague, uh, Jim Beglin, uh, who had traveled to Ukraine with me, um, on the basis of of a cold commentary uh, in in Donetsk at the time, and uh, subsequently got the gig with ITV to do the same. Uh, Dynamo Kiev, it might have been, whoever it was anyway. uh, They checked, ITV did, that uh, Jim had his visa for Ukraine, or said, uh, alternatively, uh, you were in the Ukraine with RCE. Uh, that visa will do for you. And the problem was it didn't. And Jim <laughs> ended up in clink for five hours by the British <laughs> embassy in Kiev, sorted things out, because obviously it was a single entry visa. But it, it, that, that kind of thing it, it can pose problems. And when you're in places where perhaps you, uh, you are, your presence isn't particularly appreciated. We think of uh, the playoff in Iran, uh, for the World Cup, uh, Mick McCarthy's team going to uh, Japan and South Korea. And uh, we were in Iran with the team. Uh, and we were there, obviously, a couple of days beforehand. So we had time to go out and, and do a little travelogue on on Tehran. So we went off with our um, cameraman and sound recorders as it would have been at the time, and myself and producer. So the four of us And uh, we went up to the local, I don't know if it's a souk in Iran or what it is, but the local market bazaar, to to kind of just paint a a picture for television of what life is like. Anyway, we hadn't uh, clearly got uh, the full permission that we required to do this, because uh, very soon it became apparent that we were being pursued by uh, some of the local constabulary. Uh, But as I was doing a stand-up on the street, uh, with a few uh, passers-by, they then became aware of what was going on. And rather than uh, assist the local constabulary in getting us off the patch, formed a, like a guard around us so that we could, could c- continue what we were doing. And I have this vision still in my head of these Iranian police or whoever they were at the back of the crowd, trying to, trying to get through the crowd to get at us. And we got done what we needed to do and were then kind of spirited away by the locals to get away from uh, what was possible arrest.
2: Two very quick ones, just while Barry's thinking. Um, going to Trabzon with a, a BBC producer of, of many years' service called Pat Murphy to do a UEFA Cup tie back in the 1990s against Aston Villa. And we were there for, for three days across the eastern side of Turkey. It took a, a long time to get there. And we, we had no uh, Turkish guide. None of us spoke the local lingo. And Pat, one of his habits is to give a thumbs up to people. And it was only after three days of people threatening to, th- hit, to hit him that we discovered that the thumbs up is the same as putting two fingers up. To <laughs> um, uh, Barry, I don't know if you've
3: thought of anything and it's fine if you haven't, but just to finish up, guys, and it's been an amazing chat and such great insight. Barry, um, any advice to uh, any, maybe a person listening who would aspire to be involved in broadcasting or commentary uh, that you might, you might want to lend them?
4: I've got a standard answer when, when kids come up and ask. Uh, well, they say, how do how do I do this? Uh, the answer is whatever you're doing. Look at other people, listen to other people, but be yourself. It's the best piece of advice you can give give any kid. And there might be, you know, I remember a young producer at the BBC uh, something from a match that that uh, uh, had turned out that, that I, I made a mistake, uh, which I did quite often. Um, uh, and I said, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you come on and, 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 and say? I said, well, we can't tell you and, and John how what to do, how to do it. I said, of course you can. You might have discovered something or told me something that would have made me a better commentator. So do it your own way. That's been my advice to any kid.
2: Great advice, John Champion, briefly. I'm going to borrow what Barry said to me. 25 plus years ago which is that less is more and the amount of attention that an audience pays to you is probably an in inverse proportion to the number of words that you utter so i would i would go back to my first point at the very start um but if i'm talking to a young commentator trying to make his way i would stress that it's not all about him or her um it, it's about yes you do the job but don't get in the way of the event i'm sorry to bring it full circle but that just strikes me as the most important then thing because you're there to improve the viewer's experience, not get in the way of it. Well, George, it's also great to hear you
3: on Hamilton scores on,
2: on Lyric FM,
3: the classical touch, as well as the football commentary. Your advice to anybody in broadcaster, George, or commentator?
1: I think Barry and John have put it uh, very, very well indeed. It's be yourself, don't get in the way. And um, my, my line that, I, that aspiring uh, broadcasters uh, would hear from me if they ask me is, is basically be prepared. Uh, because you never know quite what opportunity is going to present itself. Like how Barry uh, explained how Barry ended up in, in being a commentator was because of, of uh, the fact that ITV needed men quickly. So he was ready for that opportunity. Uh, John Champion will have a similar tale to tell. And George Hamilton will tell you that he got lucky too because he started as a, as a rugby commentator in Belfast because the guy who was doing the rugby was a very senior civil servant uh, who had a lot, not much time on his hands. And he, when I came along and was keen to do it, he said, if that lad's any good, give him a go because I'm happy to step back. And that was how I got started. And So it's, it's a question of chance, really, because you've got to be prepared for the opportunity to present itself. I wanted to be a football commentator, but I had to start with rugby and it went from there. So be prepared, I suppose, is the best, the best advice that I could, be, could, could offer to, to any aspiring broadcaster
3: we gotta leave it there. George Hamilton, Barry Davies, and John Champion, absolute legends. Thanks so much for being so generous to give us your time this afternoon. Thank you for giving colour to not only my childhood, but to so many other people out there, brightening up our experience as sports fans, as football fans. You're the guys who painted the pictures. And so all we can do is thank you. Thank you so much for everything you've done.
1: Well, thank you for having us. It's been a pleasure. Great to talk to you, John. Barry thank too. You. Thank you very much.
3: This is Off the Ball Saturday on News Talk. We're back after this. The Saturday
0: panel.
4: On off the ball.
0: The OTB Podcast Network with Green Farm on the go. Snack smart with 100 percent natural protein powered chicken bites.